It sounds like a mob story. You know, I mean, well, whiskey is partially mob related, so. Just time on the ankles of all the bottles with some cement weights and drop them <laughs> off in the middle of the lake. You somewhere. did not sell. <laughs> you shall perish. Bottom of the river. Yeah. <laughs> this is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. The bourbon landscape has evolved dramatically over the past century, shaped by changing tastes, technologies, and regulations. And bourbon trends have ebbed and flowed, with favorites like maple finishes and honey cask maturation rising and falling in popularity over the past few years. And as innovation marches on, questions remain about well, what's next? So Ryan, Fred, and myself, we discuss the nuanced offerings of things like cigar blends and Amberana-type bourbons and if they'll be fleeting fads or if they can establish themselves as mainstays. We also wonder if rye whiskey and light whiskey have now completely peaked in popularity with nowhere else to go. While some trends, they fade fast, broader consumer excitement for bourbons finished in different types of barrels suggests that the underlying whiskey geek's curiosity for looking for new flavors just isn't going to disappear anytime soon. However, we also wonder, are core classic bourbons going to flourish once again with consumers? With so many aging experiments underway, it's impossible to predict exactly how taste will evolve. But one thing's clear, the bourbon landscape will continue its dynamic change. Enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Ryan Cahoe, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Why is it that the same bottle of bourbon can taste different so many different occasions? I've had bottles that sometimes taste like the best bourbon I've ever had, and the other times make me wonder what the heck I was thinking. I don't get how the taste of liquid can vary so much. Well, Ryan, this is a great question, and it is a part of something that really, when you become a professional taster, you realize that the whiskey does not change. You do. There are so many things that can impact how a whiskey tastes to you in a particular moment. And this dates back to the science or at least the anecdotal evidence of this dates back to really distillers in the 1800s. Distillers in the 1800s would talk about how they would notice if they ate onions, the whiskey would taste differently to them. Uh, chemists in the 1940s began doing studies talking about like how chemistry is more important than the human senses because you can't trust human senses on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think COVID was a really good indication for people of like their senses. Because if you have a little bit of a cold, if you have allergies, uh, and certainly if you've had COVID, you know that the whiskey will taste differently, and all foods will taste differently too. So you change. Now, there is actually on occasions where the bottle changes, like if the bottle has a bad cork, if it's been poorly stored, etc. That has an absolute impact on the bottle itself. But chances are you changed. Your palate changed in a moment. 
And it really comes down to a few certain things. One, your intake. So what you ate, how much water have you had? If you're dehydrated, you would be amazed how bad your palate is. Your palate will be awful if you are dehydrated. You notice I'm always drinking water. When you watch my videos tasting, I'll drink water all the time. It probably also goes back to my army days when they told us to drink water. Beat the heat, drill sergeant, beat the heat. Uh, the other thing is like, it, you know, if you've had uh, spicy uh, onions or something that doesn't necessarily agree with you, something you have um, an aversion to, like for me, I can't have cauliflower. Cauliflower is my kryptonite when it comes to tasting. Cauliflower just destroys my palate. I can't taste a whole lot after that. So I know not to eat cauliflower when I'm about to do a tasting. Also, your mood will have a big impact. If your favorite sports team lost, if you got in a fight with your spouse, there's so many things that can put you in a bad place that your mind will not be focusing on your palate. It'll be stuck in that moment of the bad place. So those are a couple things. And the other thing that is really important, especially if you want to take it to the next level as a professional taster, your surroundings. Music you like will impact the whiskey you drink. Music you don't like will impact the whiskey you drink. If there is a smell near you, if there are birds chirping, all of those things can have an impact. So if you're wanting to be purely analytical, try to be in as a quiet and you know smell-free place as you possibly can. So I would not recommend uh, doing your bourbon tasting at the Von Mar perfume counter, as an example. But that is a great question, one that um, I have a lot of experience with. And if you would like to be like Ryan, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Click the contact button and send me your question for Above the Char. And if I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. 
Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Urban Pursuit, the official podcast of Urban. The trio is here today, back with another topic, because that's what we like to do. We take some culturally sensitive topics, maybe not sensitive, but maybe sensitive in the bourbon world. We don't, mm-hmm. we don't get too deep there, but we want to look at it and try to try to break it down and try to figure out some history, try to figure out where do we see things trending and maybe it'll help understand the psyche of people and their buying habits as well. And today we're going to be looking at the life cycle of trends. And that's because over the past, I would say 10 years, we started off looking at Actually, I wouldn't say 10 years. I mean, Fred, keep me honest here. I would say the past 50 to 100 years, there was no such thing as cask strength bourbon back in uh, the old days. It was usually pretty, pretty mellow. It was 80 to 90 proof. That's what a lot of stuff was in the 70s and 80s. You definitely didn't see a lot of OGD dusties that crept up beyond 114. Asthmat, OGD. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, there was that. a, there There were some like a lot, there's a lot of 107 proof. Weller had, uh, they called it uh, barrel proof in the forties and fifties. So you did see, you did see some, a little bit over 107, but 107 and bottle and bond, hundred proof. Those were kind of gold standards until vodka came out and they changed tax structures. Then you started seeing people go down to 90, a lot more and 86 proof and then 80. And usually proof changes almost always had an, the reasoning for it was because of taxes. It was never because of like the, it was very rarely about what the consumer taste was. With the exception of light whiskey, which was created to compete with vodka, and that would, light whiskey is essentially distilled at higher proof points than bourbon, and it's aged in uh, used barrels, so it, it can taste hotter and, and more neutral, and that was their plan to be like vodka. It, it fell flat on its face. In fact, if Brown Foreman's light whiskey, Frost 880. If they talked about that in the hallways, they would get reprimanded or fired. They, <laughs> they, they took all Is those, bad? took all the bottles. So it was like 1972, 1973. They had their distributors collect all of the bottles and they, they brought them back to Brown Foreman. They dumped them and then they crushed them and they buried them in a landfill in Shively somewhere. So it's how bad Frost 880 was for for them and that's it sounds like a mob story you know i mean well whiskey is partially mob related so just time on the ankles of all the bottles with some cement weights and drop them off in the middle of the lake you somewhere. did not sell <laughs> you shall <laughs> you in the bottom of the river yeah uh i guess too uh there probably wouldn't be because lower you know the entry proofs back then were you know yeah that's probably right. 100 proof or yeah. lower you know probably no higher than 110 right well so uh, you know to to give a perspective here so entry proof is when it's coming off of the still they cut it with water and they put it in a barrel and um the historical proper entry proof was around between 100 and one proof 100 proof to 110 proof and it was actually law uh, that it couldn't be any higher than 110 proof until 1962. In the early 1960s, when bourbon was becoming a unique product in the United States, that's really when we see distillers lose lose the decision-making skills of the company. Everything started going to the accountants. And you hear all the time from the old timers that the bean counters like would ruin bourbon eventually. When people who are in marketing or are in accounting are making decisions about the whiskey. You, you see a trend of the whiskey being worse or not doing as well. 
But essentially, they determined that they could make more money because they would increase their volume if they went up and barrel entry proof to 125. So in 1962, that became 125 proof. So there's, there's the majority of the bourbons that are on the shelf today would not be legal bourbons if we were to travel back in time to 1958. So there's very few of them that would be Maker's Mark and Michter's are two of the main brands that would would be considered bourbon in 1958. The rest of them, even Weller, Pappy, things like that, that are weeded bourbons that traditionally are 110 proof or below uh, would not be considered bourbon. You said something about from a tax perspective, were they taxed like they are today just by the proof gallon or was it taxed differently? Yeah, they would be taxed by the proof gallon and also the proof on on the bottle. So like the the more, you know, the tax, there's, you have the sin tax, which the consumers pick up, right? And then you have the the excise tax that's off, off the still. And what's interesting to, to skip to a different, a different genre, Bacardi, when they moved to Puerto Rico from Cuba, they negotiated what's called a coverover tax. So they're paying the exact same tax of what what they paid when they moved to Puerto Rico. So they they don't pay the same excise taxes as other American spirits companies. So if you ever wanted to see if you ever wanted to see what they used to pay, just take a look at the Bacardi logs, but what's interesting uh, about the taxes is that I've always felt like the distillers use that as an excuse to make bad decisions, you know. So they make bad decisions on the whiskey because of taxes. At least it's better than in the late 1700s when they tried to murder the tax collector. So we're, we've progressed in some ways. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Small ones. I got, you know, because I'm sure we'll get in the meat of the subject here, but, you know, with different trends, you know, like with, I think we're going to talk, you know, with toasted, barrel proof, amber on a, you name it, cigar cuts or whatever. But what were trends back, you know, in the 40s and 50s, like where, you know, I, I know there were decanters and stuff to try to, but like, were there any like actual liquid trends, you know, like as a product, you know, to differentiate yeah. themselves? I would say the 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 main trends that we see from that time would be would be more on the marketing side and like how they would because you, you still had you still had people who didn't want alcohol being sold, you know, so there was still a very much a strong prohibition minded community in the public. So the way they would tap dance around consuming alcohol was 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 very clever, very interesting. I thought Pappy Van Winkle had probably the best method and that he would speak to the quality of of the whiskey and he would do advertorials in like the Princeton Journal where where highly educated professionals would read. But in terms of the whiskey itself, the big thing of that time would have been really focusing on the yeast. The stills, the barrels, they, they all would have been, they would all been very close to being similar. The the grains would, would have been similar. The the only exception would be Stitzel Weller with using wheat because no one else was really using wheat. But, you know, if you take a really good, really good way to understand the trends of the 40s and 50s is to analyze Maker's Mark, which Maker's Mark is a company that's full of stories. There's a lot of BS in some of their stuff, but their origin of how they decided to make their recipe and how they had like a consortium that included the beams of Ann Winkles, included all kinds of people in the industry. That's a really good snippet of what they were trying to focus on. 
And it always came down to the grains and the yeast. And so they would put, I would say they put a lot more focus on the yeast back then, making sure they got the right yeast strain and, and it was always propagated. You know, there was no dry yeast. So I'd say that would be the trend of, of making whiskey back then. And to this, you know, when you see new people kind of come out, like they try to figure out the yeast before they figure out everything else. And usually they don't. <laughs> so or like, that so you, like with, you, call, you call firm solutions right, because that's yeah. going to be your your easy go to there. Yeah. So, so Doctor Pat. So would like the existing companies like roll their eyes and makers are like, oh yeah, they say they're used to special or you know like kind of like like oh that's just all BS you know or whatever. Yeah. Well, they were when Maker's Mark came out in the late 1950s into the actual stores. You know, they would not have been. They wouldn't even have been a blip on the radar of most of those companies. They just would have known Bill Samuels for what he had done previously. And, you know, of course, he was in a lawsuit that he tried to get his old family brand back and T.W. Samuels, and that would end up leading to, you know, the creation of Maker's Mark. So that would be what he'd be mostly known for. But I would say that they probably wouldn't even focus on on it. What, what Maker's Mark did was being in that different package and being more expensive than everything else. That probably drawed more like eye rolls than anything. And speaking of other types of life cycles of things we've been going through, so we kind of looked at entry proof and barrel proof and kind of where that's gone. And we haven't seen that dip off. In fact, that's probably been one of the things that most people are starting to ask for more in the market. You come out with a product and they go, oh, great, but where's your barrel proof offering? Mm. And so we kind of see that as a continual trend. I don't think that life cycle is going to end anytime soon. But you also see, and this is kind of a nod to one of our past episodes that we had done, our cask finish is going to follow the craft beer craze. And we kind of see this trend still pretty much picking up steam. Uh, I don't think this life cycle is going away anytime soon. For a lot of folks, this is what they would consider innovation. This is what they consider. Are you talking about the cask strength? No, the cask finishing side of things. yeah, those are here to stay for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, and that's, I think, Ryan's, probably favorite line is uh, people just don't like to drink good whiskey. They want flavored whiskey, but they don't want to be called flavored whiskey drinkers or something like that. Yeah, pretty much. People (laughs) like to drink things that taste like other things than whiskey, (laughs) but they want to call themselves aficionados of drinking flavored whiskey. So this gives gives them that like uh, comfort in their heads. You're talking about like flavor profiles versus additives. Sure. Right. Yeah. 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 Not, not, not adding like just like truth, but like point you, finish, like you whatever know, it is. Yeah. You know, different wine cask or wood cask that just give it this like overly sweet, you know, just not bourbony flavors that make it just taste way off profile, but more, yeah. you know, because humans like wheat, I mean, not wheat, sweet stuff. You know, I feel like that really plays into that, you know, that primal instinct, you know, and, and people just like sweet stuff. Absolutely. That's why we have diabetes. That's right. <laughs> but <laughs> when I look at when I think of the life cycle of this, though, I think that this could it'll start to curb and tail off at some point. This is one of those things that allows companies to do a lot of experimentation and just see what sticks. Mm-hmm. Because the problem that we're, and it's already becoming a problem is that these shelves, what we would call the bourbon shelves, are no longer bourbon shelves. They are bourbon plus finished shelves, and they are starting to really get big. You're seeing people finish in three different casks now. And I'm like, I, I don't think I foresaw that one like five years ago. Like I knew that I knew the barrel finish craze. I mean, I was writing about the barrel finishes, barrel finish craze like 10, 12 years ago 
for wine enthusiasts and I, and Costco and people like that. And I remember thinking like, yeah, this is, this is here to stay, but I never foresaw like someone doing the three times barrel finish or the four times as <laughs> cause, cause it's tedious, you know, it's not like it's uh it's not like you press a button and it goes from barrel to barrel. I mean, someone's got to dump it, put it in a tank, put it in another barrel. I mean, it's a lot of work. It is. So I would say probably the ones that pioneered a little bit of that was even Joseph Magnus's flagship line. They were doing a three barrel blend until the cigar blend came on. And we'll talk about cigar blend and that life cycle here in a minute as well. But when I started thinking of just how far and how long you can go and how much more can retail stores sit there and take on more product. Like, I think that life cycle is going to come to an end soon, not just of cask finishes, but like how many can you do inside well, of a yeah. portfolio? It's not like you have your, it's like now you have your flagship and then you have your barrel proof and then you have with the toasted and then you have one that's cigar blend and then you have one that's Amberana and then you have port and then you have sherry and it's like goes on and on and on. It's like, it's like, holy cow, you know. And let's not forget, too, and you all know this technology well, but the the stave insertions and the chips and things like that, that that are really coming online for distillers to change the flavor profile. And everyone who listens to this show or have heard me talk about this on YouTube or somewhere, you know, I've got, I got concerns about how things are labeled and deceiving consumers and like a new consumer coming in and thinking that, a three times finished bourbon finished in these three different things that that's bourbon. It's, it's not, it's finished and it's, it's complicated. It's, it's confusing and it, it's outside of the jurisdiction of what is bourbon a little bit, but that's a topic for another time I'd say, but I would say that the actual process of these things, they, they are adding so many different flavor profiles and it is exciting, but you know, for a long time for an American whiskey, there were only a handful of ways that you could change the flavor. And usually it had to do with like it being in the warehouse for longer. And so this is this is a way to create new flavor profiles quicker. And I think that's why you're seeing so many people be on the shelf. But, you know, you talk to a retailer and they just, they kind of like, what's the branding? What's the marketing support behind it? You know, they have a, such a different mindset about what, Oh, they don't care. What what sells? Yeah, that's, that's it. all they care about. Yeah, and I don't know. You, there's a few finishes that that are gonna stick. The honey barrel. I mean, sign me up for every honey barrel that ever comes <laughs> out. I'm just putting that out there. Those things are awesome. I, Red I likes it. honey. He, he's always liked wild turkey honey. So well, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> do that <laughs> far now. But the you know you can buy that for much cheaper. That's true. <laughs> it tastes very similar. <laughs> Just but, add a little bit more bourbon to it. Yeah, you got something exactly. pretty close. The one that did it for me was the Bellamede honey. Yeah, that one's that special. thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Well, that one kind of set the trend off for sure. I mean, that there's no there's no doubt about that. The only thing I want to kind of see in that life cycle change is the price to drop, because anybody that's done a honey cask finish, I mean, if you've seen the prices on those, they're upwards of like two hundred dollars. I want to see the I want to see the cask when they're getting the honey out of it. I want to see how they do it. Because I've never seen that process. They like, probably will never show you because yeah. how much honey's in there. I, I know, right? But like, if you've ever gotten honey stuck on anything, you're like, this ain't going anywhere. This thing won't get off. But that was the beautiful part about the Bell Mead honey was like, it was just like a nice additional, it wasn't like the main component. It was just like a nice added, yeah. added, you know, you could really taste like the floor. Like when you get really quality honey, you kind of get this almost like fruity floral notes on it too. But like some of these ones 
have moved past that and it just tastes like bourbon honey. <laughs> and you're like, okay, somebody left like a couple gallons of honey in that See, barrel. This is where my my mead background was like, I, the honey thing is like, my mind is like racing with creativity because you could get you could get African honey that's really smoky. You could get European honey that's that can be like really spicy. Uh, you can even get this stuff that is called mad honey, where if you if you taste it, you get high. Like it has like some hallucinogenic because they're they're drawing from like hallucinogenic plants. Sign me up. But, uh, <laughs> I'm like the sky's the limit here. After and, this, we're like we got to start sourcing so that now, honey. Not only are you gonna have six different, now you're gonna have six different honey finishes. <laughs> but look, we're all we're all. Uh, environmentalists here or or conserve you know we like to Save conserve the, the land you know anything we can do to encourage bee population which to me this does i get excited about that yeah. but uh the thing is is like anytime something good comes out someone comes out and ruins it you know and so like when you're saying it's just like adding honey to bourbon that's not good it's not what you want that's not that's not true barrel honey barrel finish and and to that point, like they're doing the you know they're doing the stave thing with that, and it's like, eh, that's not the same thing, you know. Very true, and and that kind of goes back to that last podcast we had is that nobody asks enough questions, especially from the consumer side, to try to hold distillers accountable to say, well, how are you doing this? Where did the honey come from? What what are all these different things that influences the flavor of it? Mm-hmm. Because somebody just says, oh, honey cask, sign well, me up. I tried. You know, I've tried over. I've <laughs> well, tried that's the over thing. The they years. don't. They don't have to. Right. That's yeah. that's the way the law's written. That they can. It can be as ambiguous as you want it to be. And they always say, "Well, we are a private company, so we are going to retain this uh, confidential information." So I'll never forget yeah. asking Trey Zoller to say, "Like, I'd like to see a manifest of your of your barrels <laughs> for <laughs> ocean that went on the went on the ship." Yeah. And he, I thought he's going to punch me, but. Uh, <laughs> We joke about that but, from time to time. But do you think, too, the, like, the popularity of... I, I had this discussion with Tim Jones, who's on Moonshiners and whatnot, and yep, yep. with you, and, uh, you know, it's like the popularity of these finishes is because they're so... Like, the whiskey geek now is so new. There's so many new whiskey geeks, I guess. They don't really know what bourbon necessarily is, and there's all these finishes that they're... And that's, like, what they're gravitating towards. And it's like, do they move from the finished things to more traditional stuff or is it just like no they're going to stick in the, the you know that's what companies are trying to figure out is like is the finished stuff a gateway to our normal bourbon or is the bourbon a gateway to the finished stuff and that's well, you know that's or is this mean the life cycle of bourbon's over or, yeah. and we've got we've got to all start relying on the, the finished side of things it's evolved for sure but I, I will say you brought up something very interesting like the new consumer this happens this happens every you know new consumer cycle but what I'm seeing now are brands are not willing to educate consumers. They are just kind of letting them go so they can get that sell. And here's an example. I witnessed a, a brand ambassador of a very prominent brand tell a consumer, like, hey, try this rye bourbon. And it was rye whiskey because they because the consumer, the new consumer, could not understand, that, could not comprehend. It's a completely different category. It's, and, and it's it, it's not uncommon. It's so difficult to teach someone the differences between, for someone to accept and understand that rye whiskey is different than bourbon. I mean, I educate thousands of people a year uh, in this category, and and I will tell someone, 
I will teach them. And then they'll say, hey, yeah, can I have that rye bourbon again? I'm like, no, it's rye whiskey. Oh, cool. Can I have it? You know, and so it. And we, I have that same, even with our brand, like people will try our rye and they're like, man, your bourbon's good. And I'm like, no, that's rye. <laughs> and they're like, what? Uh, Never we're going to get a ball of that bourbon. I'm yeah. like, it's rye. So, yeah, it's, it's hap- that's, I think that there's two things happening. One is that maybe brands are just tired of trying to educate. They just, they need to capture the sale. You know, they need to, you know, they're not, they're not in my business. They're not in the like teaching people business. They're in the selling whiskey business. And and two, I, I just don't think, you know, people, I don't, I don't think people learn like they used to. We're so distracted all the time. We're so connected to our phones that we we don't absorb information like we did before the phones were out. I, I don't know. It's hot and like the the two minute video hot clip. Yeah. That, that's like, you know, the hot thing at the moment. And then you move on to the next hot thing. And is that like the next, is that what whiskey consumers will be? I guess that's what, you I kinda know, we like, kinda, I kind of feel like it is. Like is the, like there is right the, now. the everyday bourbon going to die? <laughs> I mean, it's possible. I mean, you still have those consumers that are, you know, I just finish my bottle of makers and I just go get another bottle of makers. But I think those types of people are, are slowly starting to drift away. And, and, and I think probably the people that were probably buying makers are the ones that are starting to experiment, explore and find different bourbons and even probably get into the cask finish side. It's probably not the same thing as people that are going out and getting their $12 bottle of you sure. know, yeah, yeah. Black Well, let's, let's just say like in the, in the world that we live in, which is the high level enthusiast, I think you're right. I think that the people who are listening to this podcast, and if I'm wrong, please uh, put in the comment section, tweet at us, let us know if, if we're wrong here. But I think that the high level enthusiast has moved on from Maker's Mark, has moved on from Michter's US one, except for like the tens. And the, they're they're uh, only yeah. after the the big guns. And if there is a, a everyday pour out there for them, I'd say maybe maybe it's Old Forester nineteen twenty, or if it's it could be something like Wild Turkey one hundred one, rare breed something like that. But I I do think they've moved away. However, the the normal people who are not listening to this podcast and will never want to be educated, they're brand centric. Like I. You, if you if you ever want to see what a a brand fan is like, go to Jack Daniels for a tour. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com bourbon. 
If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. The normal people who are not listening to this podcast and will never want to be educated, they're brand-centric. Like I, you, if, you, if you ever want to see what a a brand fan is like, go to Jack Daniels for a tour and you'll see people there. We had, we did a barrel pick uh, a couple weeks ago and we were in the uh, Mary Bobo's uh, room or or it's Mary Bobo's, right? How was the mac and cheese? Fattening. I I was, (laughs) I kid you not, I don't think it left my body for another week, but um, locked up. But we, the people that were in there had no enthusiasm or interest in bourbon whatsoever. And, Eric, wait, was, you mean in the restaurant or people with you? Well, so these were, we end up get tacking on to a whole nother crew. You know, it's a big room. So, oh, you mean like for the sit down yeah. portion? Yeah, 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 totally. So the people with me, they spend way too much money on bourbon. Somebody asked, we were talking about stuff and we're like, we're talking about weed and bourbon. These people didn't know anything what it was. And I was like, oh, you know, like Pappy Van Winkle. And they were like, I was like, you know, the brand Pappy Van Winkle? No. <laughs> they didn't know okay. what it was. They were Jack Daniels fans. Wow. And they, it's all they drank was Jack Daniels. And, and and they still didn't understand the difference between, they didn't understand that Jack Daniels was bourbon. And it was just a type of bourbon that's Tennessee whiskey. And I tried to explain it to them and they still didn't understand. And so- <laughs> Where's my Lynchburg lemonade? <laughs> they're like, okay, cool. But but Jack Daniels is good, right? <laughs> that was it. I was like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm here, obviously, you know, but- it's, it, I, I just, I don't know. I, I think there are very, very brand loyal people who have daily drinkers and they stick to that brand. They may skew out, but I think in our world, that daily drinker is now about 20 brands. For- I'm going to start calling you Moses because you're traveling to the, the Holy Land trying to spread the gospel <laughs> down to Jack Daniels and who knows, maybe you made a few converts out of it. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. yeah I mean, I try, man. I really do. I, I when I, so I did a bunch of private stuff for Visa actually who has become one of my biggest clients is visa like brings me in for their like card holders and I will spend so much time one-on-one with people educating them, trying to teach them the ropes about bourbon. And it's, it, it is, it's hard because they don't always retain it. They want to have a good time. And sometimes people are really into it, but most of the time, People just want to have a drink and then go listen to music, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Makes sense. We've, we've noticed that in like in-store tastings, you know, that's, you try to like say why we're different and why we're special. And they're like, don't care. Does it taste good or not? <laughs> that's, yeah. You know, and that's just the reality of it, the harsh reality of it. And Marvin Schenken told me this years ago, and he's a, Marvin Schenken is the founder of Wine Spectator. He owns Cigar Aficionado. Schenken um, News Daily. Whiskey Advocate, Schenken News Daily. I mean, he's a... Uh, in, in my world, he is a he is a god of like beverage and food media, and he he tell me he's like he's like you can do all the history you want, Fred. You can uh, try to educate people about how things are made and give talk about the personalities, but all anyone cares about is it good. And I I and this was 2016, 
they were trying recruiting me to be their editor at large and I had my own little plans to start my own magazine at the time so I didn't take it but he's like you can try all the stuff you're doing but all anyone will ever care about is is it good and all these years later I have tried and tried and tried and so Marvin you were right man you were right we occasionally get someone who cares but about you, the you found your niche, though. You just said you you sold fifty thousand copies of Bourbon Curious, so there's definitely well, there's a there's a market out there for people. It, there there is there is, but you know, in terms of like fifty thousand versus two hundred thousand, it's is it good? Yeah, that's what it comes down to. And I think I think one of the really great places to understand that is YouTube. YouTube is uh, that's true. It's the comparison. YouTube oh. is is a great place to see, to measure that. If I do a video on history, which I do, you know, or, 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 or on a trend, man, if I'm lucky, I'll get 5,000 views. If I do a video on a list, I'm not thinking it'll be 30,000 in, in three weeks. Uh, if I do it on like a really good bourbon, do a review on it, that's accessible. You know, that's 30, 50,000. If I do a list of like the best here, worst there, whatever, that's a hundred thousand within a year uh, views, and so I think YouTube is the best litmus test for what the real consumer public wants. Yeah, and, yeah. And I think you're you're definitely right because that's that's the whole what we've tried to keep ourselves out of, especially with this podcast, is trying to make sure that we are hitting on a different angle because we don't want to be the the comparison model because there's a lot of people out there that are doing that. However, you're right that is that is where the majority of people live, but there is a small segment of people that don't necessarily care about that. They yeah. don't care about what Joe Schmo says about a whiskey or anything like that. But that's those yeah, are my people. Those are our people. You know, I I love people who think for themselves. I want to teach people how to make decisions for themselves about what they like. And that and it sounds that sounds like, oh well no shit, Fred. But it's actually most people are influenced by other people with what they think. But if you if someone tastes something, you teach them how to taste and like what to look for they're like, you know what? I like this style. You know, they can't find that unless they know their palate. And so that's kind of what I like to try to do. And and YouTube has been an incredible way to do that. And I do not follow, I do not follow, go down that slippery slope. And my, and my subscriber count in comparison to others have shown that. Like I don't, uh, also I'm not the most consistent guy in the world on YouTube. I will admit that. But I like don't. A true <laughs> I I don't I don't do things just because other people are doing them. Whatever I do it because I want to do it. I can't I can't make myself like something. I can't make myself do a video. I mean, hell, I'm I'm just excited when you guys invite me back to do another episode, and I'm like, all right, I'll show up. You know, still like me. You still like you me. Guys, but I guess there's you know if you look at the data, there's 50 million bourbon drinkers in the U.S. Yeah, and you know what it, I mean say there's a top 1% that care about that, you know, it's, you know, maybe 500,000 people, you know, a couple hundred thousand people. I mean, and I think that's probably about right. You know, well, that, in terms of, so here's how, that's the high, let's like the ultra 1%, but there's about 8 million that will at some point read an article, listen to a podcast, watch a YouTube show, you know, maybe subscribe to a newsletter, but there's about 8 million that will We'll and that's the that 8 million that everybody is like vying for their attention yeah. and doing these trends and that will chase the trends. And so it's, it's just it fascinating to see like, how do you, you know, do you chase the trends or do, when do trends become like mainstays and, and 
what's your business model to to you know compensate for those what's going on in the market this, these days the best thing that i have done that has taught me about this world has been bourbon and beyond the bourbon and beyond the festival by the, the way people yeah the music are, festival are familiar with it we've had pearl jam foo fighters it's an incredible festival but you could bur- also name that your honey barrel that gets you high bourbon and beyond oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a special barrel there. That's right. You've got all these incredible bands and people come for the bands, but they connect with the bourbon as well. They like to taste it, but it's still, it's still, they're not there for the bourbon. They're not there for the bourbon. They're there for Eddie Vedder or John Mayer or Lenny Kravitz or Stevie Nicks, you know, someone, some, they're fans of the musician. The, the, the bourbon part was an add on. So I think that when, when I started seeing that and studying that and understanding it, things became a lot more clear for me. Another thing on, to build on that is that, you know, we've been doing research and trying to get, you know, more social presence and what, what is resonating with consumers. And like I was researching all the different bourbon brands and like looking at their views and what's pulling the most. In. Oh, God, are you about, y'all about to go political in your stuff? Oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. I'm saying like what content are they pushing out that, are, that's connecting with customers. Uh, and uh. nine times out of 10, if it's something about the whiskey and the process, it doesn't connect. Yeah. But if it's a food recipe or a cocktail recipe, they blow up, yeah. you know? And that's just where I think most of people's consumers' mindsets are. is like mm-hmm. cocktail, I can wrap my head around, food recipe, but like neat pours and processes, uh, that's too much. You know? Yeah, like Heaven Hill had like one of the best series ever. Like they just... Heaven Hill used to be one of those companies that was very closed off. They didn't tell you anything, you know, 15 years ago. Now they're like super transparent and they were like releasing their yeast stuff, their their mash bills. And, and Connor was getting on doing these educational systems. I was like, well, I was like, what's the point of even having Whiskey Media anymore if you guys, are just, <laughs> if you're just doing all this? <laughs> Everything we, we already. Oh yeah, those like Heaven on the Hill or something. Yeah, I mean, they were doing a great job. I don't think they're doing it anymore, but. But no, if you look at the views, it's like, no one's watching this. No one's watching it. So you're right on that. People, like even the the hardcore fans are like, cool, cool. Can I get a bottle? Is it good? (laughs) Is there a double digit age statement on it? And I think we have to, we have to be realistic. Like the majority, even the people that follow us are wanting a bottle, you know? I'm not. I'm not sure the conversation went where Kenny May originally thought about that. I really like this. About cigar blends yet? Yeah, we can dive into it. Yeah, let's dive into some of the, the trends and if you think they're going to last. Well, okay, let's let's talk about cigar blend. That was one of the things that I kind of had thought in my process here is is the dilution of it and and the life cycle of it as well. When we started recording, I, I kind of was thinking in my head, like, who's the first person to come out with that? And I think Joseph Magnus was probably the one that really pioneered that, as yeah. well as Nancy Fraley being the mastermind behind it as well. And as we started progressing, now we've seen pretty much everybody come out with some sort of what they would call a cigar blend. And it's not the same type of cask finishes or anything else. You've got Starlight with, I'm pretty sure there's, there's I've seen Good Times. I've seen probably five other variations. Pleasure Durst has one. Yeah. Everybody's got a variation of what they consider a cigar blend. And I didn't even think about it. And Fred, I'll let you kind of tell about your thought process about that. It was like, well, isn't every bourbon a kind of a cigar blend. <laughs> yeah. Look, I love Nancy Fraley. I think she's one of the most brilliant blenders of all time. Oh, yes. And I will never say anything but positive things about her. 
the whiskey that was labeled cigar blend was fantastic and it was meant to pair with with cigars and i and they just things kind of like kind of like someone like taking someone else's idea and screwing it up down the road using the same verbiage yeah i think um, she was definitely a pioneer in that it, realm and calling yeah. it what it is and then all of a sudden it's and it's, it, it's it, toasted it's whatever it's it's a thing that catches on and i'm like you know everything can pair with a cigar you just got to find the right cigar and you got to find the right whatever so i hate i hate the phrase cigar blend because like okay what kind of cigar you know then you but it's sexy you know whatever and you know, people get excited about it. And, you yeah, know, they're trying to sell whiskey. I'm just trying to be You're trying to be. But some of them went from like pairing with cigar to tasting like a cigar, like and they had this smokiness. And yeah. I was like, oh, this is just like not what I was looking for. But I don't know that's a cigar. I think the cigar blend will kind of evaporate pretty quickly. I don't think it's going to last as long as some of these other ones. But yeah, because like, you don't have the talent of Nancy Fraley. I'm sorry, but if you are not at that level. Your shit's gonna suck, and if you can't if you can't put it together, and if you don't have access to the stocks or know how to finish or know how to blend, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it Pancake Monday, and it's it's gonna suck. So I mean, don't get me wrong. I've seen a lot of maple syrup finished stuff too, and there's no yeah. shortage of that. And I, I think that's as a producer, that's all you do. You kind of see what's hot, and you say, "Well, let's go ride that wave for a little while." And that's exactly what toasted was for the for the longest time. And you start seeing the life cycle of really what that is. You see, you see the the wave start coming up. You see the early adopters get into it, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden everybody's on it and it's a tidal wave and it's going to start coming crashing down. Yeah. And I feel like that will happen with a lot of these different kind of cask finishes because everybody's got a toasted finish. At some point, everybody's going to have a cigar blend. I really want people to be more unique in what they think and how they name things. I mean, Barrel does a great job. They call things Vantage and Seagrass. Penelope does Rio and some other things. Like It's like they give them their own identity Instead of just sitting there saying like, oh, let's just go it's, hop on a fat. It's our mash bill in a different finishing vessel, you know, that's giving it its own, its own name. is And two, like with, especially the barrel concept, because they're not just using, you know, I guess the annoying thing to me with, I don't mind the cask finishes. It's just annoying when it's like, all right, here's our mash bill in 10 different cask finishes versus like barrels, like blending stuff that goes well with that cask finish, you know, particular one. And I think that... Their product represents that. Penelope's done a pretty good job, except with the Amberana one. I think it's good. I, I love the Penelope boys. Everything's great. The real one is just like tastes too artificially sweet for me. But you know, uh, you, but you they've done up, a great job and brought you know tied those cities and names and whatnot. Yeah, you brought up Amberana. I mean, that yeah. was one of the things you want to talk about, right? I mean, or is that another episode? I let's, forgot. Let's dig into it because it's we know it's a hot topic at least for us. And we'll, yeah, we'll start, let's talk about the just the life cycle of it. You know. Pablo from Rare Character, I think it was one of the first ones that we saw really put it on the map. And we've seen a lot of people start jumping on board with it. Now, this is this is a relatively new trend. However, I don't know. This might be the, the quickest life cycle that we're going to see of something fall off. Mm-hmm. Only because, well, for I know you got some data to put behind this, but for the average consumer and put me in that bucket is that this taste profile is so far off from anything that I want to drink on a daily mm-hmm. basis that it's, it's one of those things that you're going to get people to buy the first bottle because they're like, ooh, what's this? And then they try it and they go, well, I'll save this and wait for it till Christmas time. 
because that's the only time I could really see myself drinking anything I'm on a finish. Yeah. But Fred, you had some data points that you wanted to bring. Well, you know, here's the thing about, about the United States of America. We are very protective of endangered species. And like if you have a construction site and there is a bald eagle there, a bald eagle nest, or like a special woodpecker or a snake, they stop the construction. Is that and, sweatshirt made of pure koala skin? Is that what that um, is? No, you know what? Just kidding. It's actually, it's actually kangaroo, and uh, that is not an endangered species in Australia. I'm kidding for the kangaroo fans out there. I did not mean to offend you. But we take that stuff seriously. And I am told by a couple barrel brokers that the TTB has been investigating the sources of a lot of the Amberana coming into American whiskey. And by the time this thing airs, it may have already been shaken out. Who knows? But there has, in the Cachaca community, which Cachaca is the uh, native Brazilian spirit that uh, uses all sorts of woods. Of course, Brazil is home to the rainforest and all kinds of rare and endangered wood. And they, they use Amberana and they there's a certain legal way to harvest it. And there's concerns that a lot of the Amberana has been coming into this country has been harvested illegally and that the barrels have been sold illegally. And so there's there's some investigations into that, I am told, from several sources. And the people in Brazil who who broker, who sell cachaça are very concerned about the American whiskey market having an impact on their wood species there. Because the thing is, is like once we get a taste for Brazilian wood, then it's like, oh, what's next? Can we use teak? Can we use mahogany? You know, so there's a concern from uh, some Brazilians that we may we may start wanting to have a taste of something else. And that is, you know. So if you're using Embarana, you're also hurting the environment. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. There you go. Uh, I, Give them that scarlet letter. I mean, I don't I don't know if I want to go, go I that know, far. I know, I'm, I'm totally but, kidding. But like there's, there. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, we all fish, right? In some In some parts of the country... Uh, you cannot catch a certain type right, of fish. Right, it's got to be, or it's got to be a certain length or yeah, size you, you, or you have to weight. put it back in there. It's it's the same thing. And believe me, the fish cops, they love writing tickets. You know, I've when I was in Wisconsin, I thought I was going to get arrested because I cut up a bluegill for bait. Woo! Do not do that. And really, got, just a bluegill? It was just a bluegill. I mean, apparently in this particular lake, it was. It was not doing well. So like, you cut up a blue get and he d- different accent, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's out Wisconsin. I'm in I'm in my uh, kayak, all nervous, but uh, that's a story from a long ago. So we 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 think honey barrels here to stay. Maple, you think that's here to stay? I think so because people are so used to breakfast. It does and, really good in old fashioned. Yeah. I, I don't really sit there and gravitate to myself and be like, I could really go for a maple finished bourbon right now. But be, in an old fashioned, it does pretty well. I don't know. It's just one of those things that I think you have to have that hankering and or that, you can that just add maple syrup to your old fashioned. Or you could just do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're right. You know what? This is going to sound weird, but I want to try a maple syrup finished bourbon with my cereal. Like instead of using milk, put it with my Cheerios. Okay, I would go on cinnamon toast crunch. Ooh, yeah, match made in heaven. Some little CTC action there. Yeah, how much? How much do you think you need to put? Because when you do, you do like a cup of milk. How much bourbon do you think you would need for your cereal? <laughs> Gosh, I don't. Would you do know. a cup? A cup of bourbon? 
That's I mean, a lot of bourbon. Be, it's a lot of bourbon. That's a lot of bourbon. Yeah, that's a boozy breakfast. <laughs> yeah, I was to say. I was like, meet your breakfast at 9.30 and nap Bre- at breakfast nine, bourbon. 9, 9.45. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, all right. So, Ambrana, I, I do think that's going to be short-lived. I mean, yeah, one way or another, one way or another, that's going to be out. I mean, wine finishes, they're here to stay, I think. Definitely. Because they're, they're so prevalent in scotch, and I think it's just uh, an accepted... Sherry and scotch has kind of been a match made in heaven for a very, very long time. Yeah. And people call them sherry bombs for a reason. And I think that's that's definitely going to translate. And I do wish, urban. though, people would educate themselves on sherry itself. Like, actually taste sherry and not just the whiskey finished in sherry. Yeah. I don't sh- like sherry by itself. Yeah. It's, it, Is it it's, too sweet for you or something or what? It's too sweet and kind of too so, earthy also. So there's like, I, I think you got to go down the path of drinking outside of like what we can get here in Kentucky. Sure. I went to Jimenez last year and drank some and it was just. Oh, you were in Spain. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You didn't like it? Uh, I, there, I, I couldn't get, it was just too thick, too sweet, kind of too earthy for me. It was just like, I don't know. I just couldn't find one that I really liked. There might what be about, one. Do you like port? Port, no, even worse. <laughs> I think port on, I mean, oh. port's more tolerable for sure for me. Okay. But sherry's, I just couldn't get on. Get Madeira? On. Madeira, uh, not so much. Okay. It's too bitter. You know, I did like some, when I was in Italy, I did like some, uh, like I had went to these farms and had house-made Noninos. Yeah. Gosh, those were good. But that's not, I know that's like a mixture of different things and whatnot. Do you, do you like? Amaro Nonino or whatever it is. Yeah. So bitter kind of, do you like, did you like grappa? Do you have any grappa oh, out there? that's like jet fuel. That's jet just, fuel. Just yeah. so bad. It tastes like hot twigs but wow. anyways hot twigs i like that one <laughs> feel free to use that in your next tasting well, notes hot twigs what, is, here's yeah. a here's a trend that a lot of people are gravitating towards that i don't it's still t- tbd is american single malts like what do you think that's going to do for me i think this will take it'll be a slow growth if it's anything everybody's kind of jumping on well i wouldn't say everybody's jumping on people have thought about this previously especially folks like jim beam that actually released their own american single malt that wasn't a source product like some other ones that have been out there. I mean, I guess the easiest thing is that if you want to get in the single mark category, it's not hard because you just call up MGP and you can buy some and then all of a sudden you're in the ASM business. But f- I do feel that this is a this is going to be a regional thing only because, you know, we've talked to people in like the Northeast and, you know, that's that's up there Colorado or yeah, Pacific like, Northwest like that mm-hmm. that that rules versus bourbon which is definitely very centric around this part of the country and you know Ohio Indiana Tennessee that's that's the way it is maybe it's just more of that sort of rugged outdoor lifestyle that you get a american single malt kind of consumer yeah i i just kind of seen this play out in the space and you talk to retailers and I'm like, so how do these American single malts do? Like, yeah, they don't move. Yeah. I wouldn't think so. It's so it's, it's going to take, it's going to slow burn. I, I will tell you, I drink them at home, like wet Westward, Westland, St. George. I mean, there's a lot of really good American single malts. I also think that single malt distillers have a different skill set than bourbon distillers. And I, it's I, a lot of pot still, right? Yeah. There's, it's a lot of pot still, but also, extracting full flavor out of barley is different than, you know, than corn. Just using it for enzymes. Yeah, it's the, very yeah. different. And because they, they're they getting a different style of barley and there's a lot of effort to grow different barley species, especially in Washington, the state of Washington. So I don't know. I, I just don't, 
I think uh, Westland is the largest single malt producer in the country. And they they have a peat monster that's done really well. So they have, they've developed a... Stranahan uh, has a... Are they yeah, big? Stranahan's Stranahan's got the snowflake, and yeah, so you you do see some cult. What you kind of assess a category by like who's got the cult following and bourbon. Good lord, you can right. There's tons of them, but single malt has some cult followings around some brands. You know, Saint George. Whenever they drop one of their lots, you got Westland, Westward. Westward does really well with certain people. I think the biggest thing about this is that that particular category has to compete with scotch. And until you can make a product that is just as good at a comparable price, that's going to be their biggest hurdle. Boat. And Japanese whiskey. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, so that's ja- all multi. Yeah. yeah. Japanese whiskey kicks, can kick everybody's ass. You know, that shit's good. So there's actually one more thing that I want to bring up only because you brought it up earlier, Fred, which was light whiskey. So mm-hmm. we had a light whiskey trend that came and went away. And then as of what, it was probably three, four years ago, you saw a big influx of light whiskey come on the market. And that is kind of faltering off a little bit. You don't hear people doing it. And I don't think this was a trend that was necessarily out of people who go like, ooh, people want light whiskey. I think this was a trend of, ooh, this is what's available on the open market and has a double digit age. Yeah, I think that was more of a, (laughs) I think, I think it was more of a double digit air and two light whiskey is very sweet, you know, cause it's mostly a hundred percent corn or 99% corn or whatever. And it's overly sweet that double digit. I think that's what drove that for a few years. And it was, you know, a lot of source bourbon double age was dried up and that was all it's left. So they're like, well, I guess we'll use this. Yeah, go to light whiskey. (laughs) My favorite part of light whiskey is watching the people try to market it and and talk about how good it is. I'm like, okay, you know, it's when I see it as a blending component, you got my attention, but when it's by itself. Yeah. By itself, it's missing so much. It's a very good bait. Like, I guess not light. Maybe, maybe I like more, I guess Canadian whiskey. Would that be considered a light whiskey? Somewhat. Well, Canadian whiskey does use light whiskey, and some of them use light whiskey in their blends. So uh, that's that's kind of why. But they're both similar, like you know, ninety nine percent or hundred percent corn recipe. Well, Canadian whiskey is complicated because it's a blend, and then they can add up to nine point oh nine percent of brandy or sherry or whatever. So they're they're all over the place. But I guess if it's like a pure Canadian whiskey, like a not not just the shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's technically not shenanigans within their laws. Oh, okay. But, well, but but yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it yeah, you're right. You're right. It that it, it it could be. There are some brands out Canadian styles that would be similar to that, and that is, and that is kind of what Canada evolved to is if they're they would they would take the light whiskey or straight the rye or the bourbon mash bill, and they would blend it together. And so, like I would say, it would be like a, a component of of one. An of interesting. One last question. Do you think rye whiskey has peaked and it will never catch up any more than it has, or is it still room for growth for rye? That life cycle, I think there's still room to grow. I think that's been a, a cocktail culture phenomenon, and that's where it's really growing from. I still think there's room for the category. I think there is the only room for the category, and this just, God, I just keep harping back on this, is like if we have more reliable rye whiskey that's out there, that's not just more 95.5 coming from the same exact source mm-hmm. in Southern Indiana, we'll have a better chance of making yeah. a coat. Well, I'll tell you what, Sagamore 
is a really good is a really good one to watch because they have the capital and they are they are doing it right and they're trying to bring back you know their country's or their their state's history of of making rye. I also look at Dad's Hat as as a really good one for like how the craft distiller movement. I think rye is at the tip of the iceberg. I think it's got a lot of growth. And as long as as long as a consumer thinks they're buying bourbon, but they're actually picking up rye, <laughs> well, that's, uh, that, that, that's good brand you know, confusion. <laughs> our, our rye sells way less than our bourbon, but I bet if it was in the bourbon aisle, if, even though it's not supposed to be there, totally. it would sell way better. But totally. people just automatically think I'm not a rye drinker because most of the ryes on the market are that big, bold 95.5 rye that they get from Indiana. You know, bullet bourbon is what everybody drinks rye because that's on every menu, every cocktail restaurant, that's their staple rye. Yeah. Yep. And anyways, that's all I got. Okay. Yeah, well, no, I think I think rye's, rye's got a lo- nice long life cycle. Yeah. Good. I'm glad we had a good amount of life cycle of, of different trends and things that we've seen. And I'm sure we could probably circle back on this in a few months and start looking at, well, were we right? Were we wrong? What other new trends have Probably come wrong. up? Well, Amberon's going to stay forever. <laughs> I'm gonna cry. It's Christmas 2030 and we're still drinking Amberana. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Consumers are strange. Yes. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Bourbon Pursuit. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe, share it with a friend. Let us know what you think. Do you are you, do you love light whiskey? Are we wrong? <laughs> like, do you want to see that trend come back? Should we start putting down light whiskey? I have no idea. Probably not. But make sure, like I said, leave a review, rating, follow Bourbon Pursuit, follow Fred Minnick. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. Rock of six. Toodles. Toodles.